Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Three people and you're going to have four weeks do something. (laughs) It started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. (laughs) Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some stuff, and the fact that it's invisible means it works. <laughs> I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept. That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had. Hello, and welcome to the Technique Podcast. I'm Sam Fry, and this is the podcast where we speak to artists about technology. Today's episode is with a digital artist that works with a number of digital platforms, although they're best known for their work on Minecraft. The artist is, of course, Adam Clark. Here he is to explain what he does. So my name is Adam Clark, and I'm a digital producer, I suppose. I also make Minecraft maps for museums uh, and also for uh, the general public as well. I'm part of a company that makes Minecraft maps for the Minecraft marketplace. Apart from that, I also do a range of videos and uh, sort of interactive digital stuff. So, yes, it's Adam Clark. I first came across Adam's work when I saw him speak at a Remix Summit in London, which is an event where people talk about their work at the intersection of culture, technology and entrepreneurship. At the time, I knew very little about Minecraft, which, if I'm honest, I don't know a huge amount about even now. Yet Adam kind of blew my mind as he was creating art in what some might think of as just a video game. He spoke at the time about a project that he was doing at the Tate called Tate Worlds. What he had done is he had essentially recreated parts of the Tate and some of their collection in Minecraft. And what you could do is you could actually enter the artworks and explore them. Pretty amazing, right? Adam talks a bit about that project and some other amazing things that he's done in Minecraft. Also as a popular YouTuber and his work on other platforms such as Dreams, a new PlayStation platform where you can create all kinds of experiences like interactive adventures, platform games or just puzzles. I find Adam really inspiring and it's fascinating to hear about his creativity and how he is driven by working with people and how to him the act of creating art is inherently good for you. So let's get into it. Here's Adam starting by explaining how he first got into art. Yeah, so as a kid I was only good at art. <laughs> okay. So maths and English I was really, really good at. I, found I discovered I was a bit dyslexic as well but painting and drawing has always been a passion of mine so that's how I got into arts you know I've always been I've always loved drawing and painting and and making things and making things out of clay and stuff like that so 
that's what I did at school. That's what I excelled at at school. The school I went was a very liberal school, which allowed me to do... Uh, I did one A-level, which was art. And I was, so I was the only person there all week in the art room for five days a week. It was amazing. <laughs> so, and then from uh, I did my A-level art, and then I went to do my foundation course and a B-tech as well. And then eventually went to university. And I did illustration at university. I didn't do fine art because at the time, fine art was like... If you painted in a particular way, or you kind of, you know, you you did a particular style, then you were a fine artist. And I didn't fit that mold. I kind of enjoyed uh, kind of ma- making st- making a cake and photographing it in a weird way, or kind of make, collecting things together, or doing much more kind of traditional illustration stuff, but more more almost like graphic novel kind of stuff. Because the graphic novels really sort of, I was really addicted to them. They're amazing. The sort of narrative storytelling with pictures. So I did illustration for that reason, because it actually gave me more freedom. What I discovered after university was that I was actually terrible at making money out of my art. <laughs> and doing the illustration stuff was, uh, wasn't any good. But I, I, did, I still loved doing art, and I liked people. So I really found myself working with Hampshire Autistic Society. It was my first real arts job, if you like. And I was the arts instructor there um, for about two years. And they, they actually... And from there, I did arts therapy as well. They sent me to do an art therapy course as well. So I did. I worked with adults with autism, post-16, and we did lots of kind of art therapy stuff. And that got me into the world of kind of using arts as therapy, as, as a therapeutic kind of endeavour, but also using arts with people in a creative community settings as well. So I did a lot. Of, from there, I've done disability art stuff and some qualifications around that as well. Always passionately kind of taking pictures you know exploring my own kind of arts practice as well and and noodling around with all that kind of stuff all the materials and drawing and painting always kept up with life I've always loved life drawing as well so I was people are surprised because they think they picture me as this sort of digital artist and you get kind of pigeonholed like well you, you've done digital because you can't draw and it's like well actually I can you know I just I just have to do that for myself you know so I think when computers when the internet started and stuff like that, I was like, wow, this is the internet is amazing. Uh, let's get stuck in that. And I suppose my illustration and graphic designer brain got involved with making websites and doing that kind of stuff. And that was great for a while. And I was re- then I was really interested in movie making. And all those tools sort of grew up around me. So I kind of pop out at the end now, looking at video games and telling stories and wanting to illustrate them. Or kind of, you know, you have sound and image and, and play all those kind of things make sense because it's kind of like what I used to do as a sort of arts workshop but now we can kind of do it as, as a video game thing you know so that's that's kind of the shorthand version of, of where it all kind of started and why I like art and digital stuff So when you came out of university did you have a picture of what you were looking to do at that time because it it sounds like you've naturally shifted and shifted as you Yeah gone. no I had no idea I mean I think there was an expectation I think which is like to get your portfolio together take it to London you know get some commissions and become an illustrator and I just I didn't it didn't gel it didn't it didn't uh, I didn't adhere to that vision of myself what I found was I did um, a job at this uh, at the sea life center and I was a talks person there and I was like, I'd never done anything like that before but I enjoyed working with people and I was like oh how do I combine working with people and doing that kind of stuff with art and I was a bit nervous of people with so-called disabilities 
and then I just sort of got confident. I got confidence to do it, and I, I, you know, I got a job as the as an arts instructor for Hampshire Autistic Society, and that that blew me away. I had really good managers in there who did who did really good one to one stuff, and, and you know, we kind of and I learned a hell of a lot of stuff really quickly, which gave me a ton and ton of confidence about who I was, what, what all this meant, you know, there was a great reflection times in there. I mean, you don't really get that nowadays, it's really unusual, but I think I was really lucky, and that gave me a kind of, uh, an idea about where I wanted, what I wanted to pursue, and I wanted to work with people using arts for self-development uh, and, uh, and also self-expression. I, those are my kind of key things. I thought self-expression is, everybody, everybody self-expresses through an arts or a creative endeavour, whether that's baking a cake or, you know, making a poster or kind of, you know, you know doing anything creative, is, it's good for you, you know, and uh, so that's what I really believed in uh, and still do. You know. The story of the mine, how I got into Minecraft was I had been working in schools. Once computers came along and they became so small that you could put it in a bag and you could take it with you, I started doing digital things in schools and museums. And most of the time for that, schools and museums, what they wanted was they wanted some sort of animation or they wanted some interactive something that you could do with a large group of people. So before Minecraft came along, I was doing plasticine animation, often around the theme of... Well, I did a lot of climate change stuff since like 10, 10, 15 years ago, right? So I did plasticine little models of plastic like polar bears and uh, penguins and other kind of creatures and the kids would make these things and then I'd video their mouths and I'd superimpose their mouths on there and it'd be very creature comforts very quick and easy in that kind of stuff and then within schools I started to then play video games as well and the school didn't really ask for that I was like I've got 15 minutes at the end of the session should we play spore or should we do and I saw so there's a range of video games that I started introducing to schools that I thought for me were really interesting and Minecraft came along at a time when I was looking for a way of... I wanted to get a group of people together to create three-dimensional something in an, envi- in an online environment, whether in a, in a classroom but also outside of a classroom, in a community. And we were looking at Second Life to do that. And, and Second Life was great and I, I really enjoyed it, but it had a dark edge to it and it was uncomfortable for young people. Uncom- I wouldn't, wouldn't want to use it. There was a sort of a youth Second Life thing, but again very difficult to sell to a school and the amount of computers and stuff like that, that they needed was out of the range most schools don't have computers that could run the graphics that were needed for this stuff or have the internet connection especially in rural areas where I worked however minecraft worked online at that point on pretty rubbish computers in a web browser so i started using minecraft there for kids and what I noticed was immediately kids understood exactly what it was they really enjoyed moving around these spaces creating things together and I thought I saw what I saw then was a massive massive potential for kind of creating engaging content using Minecraft and and young people's kind of imagination and and play Um, so that's that's how that's how it started and I think the big break was when I, I got shortlisted for the IK prize with the Tate Britain so Tate Britain had the IK prize come up as the first year it was being done and earlier on in the year I'd been working for a museum called Tully House and Tully House is in Carlisle and I'd done loads of work for Tully House uh, often again video making kind of digital stuff all those kind of stuff and then one one day, at the end of a session one day I was like oh you never guess you know we're, we're talking to the, to the, to the organisers and I said I said, well, what else are you doing? I said, well, I've just made, I'm working with this thing called Minecraft. I, I said, I've got some satellite data of the north of England. 
and I've recreated that in Minecraft, and then I put Hadrian's Wall along there, and their eyes got wider and wider, and they got very, very excited, because obviously Hadrian's Wall, they had loads of Roman stuff downstairs, and this is when, I suppose, that kind of connection between museums and and what they have, what they contain, and and video games sort of collided together, and we did a project together, a a night at the museums, where we had loads of big screens, lots of Minecraft, we did Minecraft building of Roman structures and things like that, we showed off the kind of that satellite data of the Hadrian's Wall, what Hadrian's Wall looks like in on in scale. And weirdly, I mean, at the time, it wasn't for children. It was for post-16-year-olds. We had a nightclub, a DJ, all sorts of stuff. There were drinks. Uh, it was really interesting. And so I used that to open up the door for Tate Britain. And, and all they required was I'd done some work uh, with a museum, you know, previously, a digital sort of project. So I used that as a sort of an opening door. And I proposed to Tate Britain that we would make a Minecraft You'd be able to walk into paintings or artworks and turn the corner and see what was around the corner and maybe even meet the artist and realise, you know, and so that was that was the pitch. And we got shortlisted for that and there were kind of four or five shortlists um, and there was a big competition I didn't win it because it was like, I don't know, £60,000 production prize money and, and, and £10,000 for you. I was like, and I was poor, you know, <laughs> like just an individual artist in the north of England. But after that, after we didn't win it, it still, it, what it did is it, it validated this idea. And a couple of weeks later, Tate did get back in touch and they said, look, we haven't got that budget, but we've got a smaller budget. Let's still do it. It's a really good idea. So we went ahead and we did what then got turned into Tate Worlds, which was sort of six maps, Minecraft maps, where you literally walk into paintings and meet the artist and go on a kind of creative adventure, learning about that art history at the same time as playing a video game. It was delightful. And I think from then, everything has come off from that. I, you know, I've got approached by lots of people because that is the most engaging project that I think Tate Britain has ever done. So for those eight, that age group. We did one which the toy shop by Peter Blake, and you basically you're a tiny little figure in a giant toy shop window, and you yeah you get to play with all these guns and toys and all other bits and pieces around there. You get to uh, I think one bit you get a Superman suit and you can fly around and do all sorts of strange things. Yeah, so it's um, it was meant to be these sort of playful, fun things, um, and we had a little bit of audio that we could add in there as well and stuff like that. So. Yeah, they were a delight. One of them you met, we did the Pool of London where you walked in and you met André Derain, this French artist, and he was like, he, I remember talking to my son who was like five at the time and I said, and he played it and I said, well, what what do you think? He goes, I said, well, you know, well, did you learn anything? And he was, it's kind of like, you're not learning things, you're playing things. But I said, so what did you, how, what do you think? And he goes, I said, what what do you know about this map then? He goes, well, it's map, this painting, the Pool of London Daddy, it was done by André Derain, who's a French artist. He's a Fauvist painter. And I said, well, what does that mean? He goes, he goes oh, God, you know, uh, so it was despairing. But he said, well, Fauvism is painters, they, they use really bright colours. They're called pigments, Daddy. So we got all this technical language within the map that, that my five-year-old could then tell me about in a way that he felt really super confident about it as well. He understood it deeply, you know, uh, and I was a bit silly asking him these silly questions <laughs> at the end of the day, yeah. Your son's quite involved in, in your, your process as well anyway. And, yeah. And I guess going from those kind of projects to also YouTubing as well, do you want to talk a little yeah. bit about that and, and maybe also your son's involvement in some oh, of gosh, that? Yeah. Well, I mean, the YouTube thing was like... So when Minecraft first started, I think Minecraft and YouTube go hand in hand. We used to watch 
uh, when it was like three or four, we used to watch lots of YouTube videos. But at the time, those YouTube videos were not necessarily family friendly. There was a bit of swearing, and it was like it was difficult to sort of navigate that. So I thought at the time, well, we, I should make some videos myself. So I remember one time, I you know, he, my wife left. She went goodbye. I'm going out for the day. Look after each other. Don't do anything. You know, don't drop him. I was like, don't worry. Uh, anyway, I sat him on my lap and we played Minecraft for a while. And then we started making Minecraft videos together. The first Minecraft channel that I did was 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 his channel, if you like. Uh, and then from that, we kind of. We played for pleasure and told a story, and it was like that kind of bedtime story thing where, where I might make something happen in Minecraft, and he's just going along with it, and it's all quite good fun. So it was, it was a very pleasurable kind of fun experience, and that lasted for a while while he was into that kind of stuff. And then it was when he was a bit bored, I was like, oh, I'll make my own videos now. So I started making videos about, like video tutorials about how to tell stories or how to make Minecraft do the things that you might want it to do. Because I saw a, a gap in the, a gap where teachers and maybe parents could do this stuff as well. I saw that te- parents often were a bit confused about Minecraft and a bit intimidated by it, where children were completely unintimidated by it. Even today, you know, and it's the same sort of story. I still hear parents come up to me and go, oh, I don't know anything about Minecraft, really. But my son's completely mad for it, and he really loves it. How do I find out more? Because I, I want to support him or her in their, in their journey, because it's obviously really important to them. So I, I did some videos. I also did I did one video. And it was like a it was called When Stampy Comes to Tea, uh, and this is because at night we were you know we read up to our son Django a, a story, and it was um, when the tiger comes to tea. And one night after you've read it a million times, you kind of start improvising a little bit. So one night I said, "Oh, it's it's not tiger, it's Stampy," and he thought this is hilarious because we were watching Stampy at the time. And then Stampy is a, a Minecraft YouTuber. Stampy is a Minecraft YouTuber. At, at the time, he had like uh, about a million subscribers. Now he's got I don't know like twenty million subscribers. Like, he, you know, super famous, super amazing kind of uh, character. He's done all these amazing kind of Minecraft videos. And that night, I thought, what a great idea we should, we should do. So I tweeted him, and he he got back in touch with me. And we, from that experience, we made a video together called When Stan Becomes a Tea, which is great, a little, little, little collaboration. Still one of my very popular videos on YouTube. And then from that, Stampy invited me to come on a project that he was doing called WonderQuest. And WonderQuest was a, an educational Minecraft YouTube show that also had a, a, a an animated sequence to it as well that stuck to kind of a curriculum. So we, we were looking at schools, we were looking at both American schools and UK schools, and looking at kind of primary school curriculum and applying that curriculum to a narrative story that we then told in Minecraft in a very entertaining way. So I played a wizard, which is why I've got a beard, <laughs> and um, uh, called Wizard Keen, and Stampy played. Uh, Joseph played himself, played Stampy, and we had these great kind of adventures. And it was one of my most proudest bits of work because it was that combination of storytelling and learning, invisible learning almost. The kids could just consume and enjoy, but at the end of the day, they were like, "Oh, I know about, I know how glucose works in trees. I know how about, you know, I know how, and about cellular structure. I, they could actually, they know about some math stuff. They know about English, some English language stuff as well. So there was all this sort of delicious, quite deep learning that's sort of just under the surface of this quite charming narrative tale. You effectively recreated a, a building with the intention of then it burning, which was a, yeah. a Minecraft it was, representation of a, a real life Yeah, so that was called, yeah, so that was called Temple Craft. 
And the original project was done by Art, the Artichoke Trust. More recently, they did the London's Burning thing on the Thames, where they kind of burned down a little, uh, a little kind of wooden structure of London. But there, in our, it, this is in Northern Ireland in Derry, and they got a Californian artist called David Best, who normally does big sculptures in, for the Burning Man Festival, which are these big kind of temples, massive wooden temples that get made in the desert. And people come to these temples and they write something about, you know, they write maybe a personal thing of loss or a kind of a personal message or a hope or a dream or something like that on the temple or in the temple or kind of part of the temple. So you get all these millions of messages written in felt tip pen or or kind of just sort of attached to the, the temple. And then there's a kind of cathartic burning of that at the end where the whole thing goes up in flames and everybody's around there as a massive community and this whole thing kind of goes up. Well, they did the same in Northern Ireland. And I suppose there was kind of like a, maybe an, an idea about maybe it's going to be about the Troubles because it was done in Londonderry. But uh, I think to everybody's surprise, actually, what came about was that male suicide was a very, is a very big thing there. And that was... So there, was, there were lots of messages of grief and things like that. And I think very late in the project, that real project, I got called in because they wanted to do something digital. They wanted to tick that box, I suppose. They'd seen some of my other work, and, and I've always talked about Minecraft being something that can be very local. It can be also online and international, global. They invited me along to kind of build, rebuild the temple in Minecraft. So we could actually invite people from not just from Northern Ireland, but from around the world to participate in this thing through Minecraft. And obviously I had a quite a good following of people as well. So we, we made this thing, we put it up, and we gave people the opportunity to write in Minecraft books or to write, you can actually write on a flower, <laughs> you can name items and objects and things like that and put it in a frame. And so we, we opened up ours to the public and we put into place things that, yeah, they couldn't burn it down, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't change anything themselves. That got built and then at the end of, our, our end of the week we burnt our version down just before they burnt the real version down in, in Northern Ireland on top of this hill. And that was an amazing moment because we kind of, it taught me that something as ephemeral as a a digital video game could have deep resonance and meaning to people from all over the world, that it became a meeting space for people's grief and outpouring and messages of hope and despair that you could then go around and read. And this was, and we, you know, we had some data showing exactly, you know, and it was a global project where we had, you know, America, South Africa, Singapore, we had all sorts of people from all sorts of different backgrounds and different ages visiting it and creating videos and projects and, and writing poetry and books and stuff like that. And it was very amazing because I, I think reflecting on it, I, it, it, you know, it was overwhelming, the kind of the response to it and the meaning that it gave to people. So to be part of that was very, uh, I was very fortunate to be part of that. That experience has taught me a lot about kind of taking it seriously when you make creative spaces online for people to participate in, you can give people a voice for themselves and that can be very authentic and meaningful. We've recently released a book as well, and I suppose that's... So we released a book called Minecraft Life Hacks Lab for Kids, which was really about emotional intelligence and, and to a certain extent, mental health. In that, we have creative workshops that you can kind of go and pursue to kind of look at kind of leadership skills, we'll look at six skills and improve them and then apply them to kind of project-based learning. And I think from that idea, there's other opportunities where, where we're looking at maybe a, a documentary that looks at video games 
and mental health, or maybe we want to call it something else, maybe we want to call it emotional intelligence. And Because I think you know, mental health is such a broad subject, and sometimes video games get kind of blamed and things like that too. But the way I view video games is, I view them in the same way as I might view lumps of, you know, a creative endeavour. They're very playful, they're often quite enjoyable spaces, and if we look at positive aspects of them, and we, we can use those positive aspects in intelligent ways, then we can actually get a lot out of them, more than we actually put in. Whether that's re- relaxation, whether that's kind of reflecting on ourselves, or reflecting on the game that we're playing, and asking questions about the games that we're playing as well, and whether they are a reflection of us or, or you know, so if I'm playing a very aggressive game, what, you know, what might be, what might why am I doing that? When, what am I interested in? Stuff like that. So it's about giving people tools to be able to reflect on the things that they do, whether that's playing video games or not. And in some ways, I like video games because they allow me the creative freedom to monkey about with stuff with other people uh, and create things. One of my other things is like, you know, I've been working with uh, Dreams, which is a Media Molecules platform on the PlayStation 4. Which I really love because it's it's a wide open kind of platform which you can make music, 3D objects, interactive stories, videos and games. Uh, and then you can share them with people from around the world. So all these things at the moment, it's, it's a bit of a mush at the moment for me because I'm thinking about all these different opportunities and possibilities. So I'm hoping to pick these things apart. But I suppose the big themes are mental health or emotional intelligence creativity within digital platforms that maybe mirror real life creative endeavors so that's drawing and painting or kind of much more artistic endeavors and access to all as well which is i think a big thing for me everybody has an opportunity to do this everybody should have opportunities to do this as well you don't have to be artistic in inverted commas you can just be having a a lovely play with something and it's still a creative endeavor and and that you should get the same sort of feelings and uh, an immersiveness uh, as you would if you were drawing and painting, for example. Well, that was the interview, and that was Adam. If you want to find out more about Adam and his work, then as you might imagine, there are lots of places online. He often goes under the handle The Common People, so I would suggest that you look at thecommonpeople.tv as a good starting point. If you go there, you can see lots of the projects that he has been involved in, including some of those mentioned today. The other place is his YouTube channel, where he goes under the name Wizard Keen. That's K-E-E-N. And if you go there, well, why not have a look at the video that he mentioned in this episode, called When Stampy Came to Tea, which is one of a number of parody videos available on there. And then he also has his book, which actually I asked him to elaborate on a bit further. The book I wrote with my wife, Victoria Benham, uh, and it's called Minecraft Life Hacks Lab for Kids. And it's part of a series of books that have come out, some from teachers looking at STEM, looking at kind of the education side of things. But what we wanted to do is we wanted to, and we've worked with an American publisher, Quarto Books, 
to create uh, this book about emotional intelligence. So it really looks at kind of skill-based stuff, but also what it does, it, it, it's Minecraft-based, okay? It's unofficial. So we have some Minecraft stuff which is in-game, but we always match that with two out-of-game activities as well, whether that's drawing and painting or kind of scribbling or kind of notebooks. So it really comes from an artistic kind of background uh, and theory. So that's available. If you you can Google it, you can go to Amazon. It's available everywhere, basically. So wherever you buy books, uh, you can kind of find it. So yes, if you do want to find out more, then you can also buy the book too. I'd like to say thank you to Adam for being part of this episode. He was great to interview and had so many interesting projects that it was clear that we only just scratched the surface. Also, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and hopefully you like the fact that we sometimes interview an artist, sometimes an arts organisation and often just others in the spectrum of work that fits at the intersection of art and tech. If you do like listening, please do give us a rating on iTunes as that really helps us. And spread the word. Give us a tweet at Technique UK to let us know that you listened. It really is lovely when we receive any mentions from listeners like that. So please do, um, because it's great when you get in touch. Well, that's it for this month. We will, of course, be back again next month with another episode. But in the meantime, take very good care of yourself. Goodbye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.